right, guys, Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, verse 1 is where we're going to start reading here in just a couple of minutes. But what happens here is that today, guys, we hit the final section of this book. And like the end of most epistles in the New Testament, what begins to happen now is, is the, the writer of the book is, is reminding this church, reminding his readers of, of ways in which they're supposed to live. The end of almost every epistle sounds a little bit like chapter 13 does. And don't forget this and this and this and do this and don't do this and greet these people and these people are on their way to greet you. It becomes almost a bullet list of things. And so it is with the end of the book of Hebrews. Now, throughout this study, we've dealt with some really interesting things, and quite frankly, with some very difficult passages of Scripture. We've talked about angels and priests and sacrifices and this guy named Melchizedek and Moses and Abraham. And through it all, we've made the point that Jesus is greater than everything that tries to lay a claim to our souls. Jesus is greater than anything that promises provision and salvation for us. It is Jesus, and it is Jesus alone. So at the end of the epistle, we hit this point where the writer essentially says this. So because all of that is true, how now should we live? This is what happens in chapter 13. Now when we begin to talk about what it means for us to live as followers of Jesus Christ, what we are supposed to do, I think it is radically important to remind ourselves of the order of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not perform well enough and then be accepted by God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is you are accepted and saved by God and now we live into the grace of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ and because of faith in Jesus Christ, our souls are saved from the destructive power of sin. And then we are empowered by God's Holy Spirit to then live into the gospel. So we remind ourselves of a really critical passage of Scripture. And when it comes to this thought, it's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Now listen to the order of this as it, as it comes to us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay? We are saved by grace through faith. It's not your works that save you. But it is your salvation that leads you into the good works that the Father has prepared for you. Does that make sense? So we need to keep that clear as we go through a list of, now here's how we live as followers of Jesus Christ. Now I want to come back to a thought we dealt with earlier in the book of Hebrews. But I think it's going to be our controlling idea throughout this chapter. Scripture often calls God's faithful people the remnant. Everybody say the remnant. <laughs> God often calls his faithful people the remnant, the faithful minority of God's people in whatever culture and at whatever time. The remnant are God's people at work inside of this world. So I want us to think through three things that are true about the remnant in Scripture and true about you and me as followers of Jesus Christ as we are part of his remnant as well. 
And it will help us make sense of what's so important about Hebrews chapter 13. And first is this, and this will come clearer to us as we move through this passage. Guys, keep in mind that the remnant will disagree with culture on critical issues. The faithful people who follow Jesus Christ in whatever culture, at whatever time, are going to discover that they will disagree with the rest of culture on important issues. We actually need to learn to expect disagreement, and we need to learn how to handle those disagreements well, with grace, with truth, with love, with courage. Remember the very end of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 11 is the story of all these people who by faith did great things for God. And leading into that entire chapter on faith, the last verse of chapter 10 said this, We are not among those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who have faith and preserve our souls. We are God's remnant and we will move forward in faith, right? So this is part of what happens to the remnant. The second thing that's going to kind of help control our thoughts this morning is that the remnant has a preserving effect. In how the remnant bears witness to the kingdom of God, it will have a preserving effect in its world. So guys, the presence of faithful people cannot but bear witness. And when we think of witnessing to Jesus Christ, we think of the conversations we have and the words that we speak to other people. And of course, witnessing includes that. And of course, that's supposed to be part of our interaction with this world. But it is also supposed to be the way that we live. That, guys, we have been transformed and now our lives become public witnesses to who Jesus Christ is. So the remnant bears witness and has this preserving effect. And then the third thought is this, the remnant will always contend for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guys, the message of grace, the message of new life that is possible in Christ, it just does not change. And it is always the same to every person everywhere. So we are asked by scripture, just don't give up on what has saved you. And learn how to speak it and learn how to live it, and learn how to show it to the rest of the world. All right, with some of these thoughts in mind, let's begin reading in Hebrews chapter 13. And let's just read verses 1 through 8. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison... As though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in high honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you about the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It comes at you pretty fast, doesn't it? 
You know, if you wrote this in a paper today, this just might be a bullet list of things. Let this happen. Don't forget this. Don't forget this. Do this. Don't let this happen. Remember this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and forever. Okay. Now go in grace and peace, right? <laughs> Behave this way. It comes at us really pretty quickly this way. But what holds all of this together is the vision of the people of God who are his remnant, who are the faithful and enduring people who follow Jesus Christ. No matter what goes on around them, no, no matter what kinds of pressures come into our lives, whatever rises out of our own temptation and sin, that's what holds this all together. So right at the very top of the list is this reminder. Let brotherly love continue. I think it can even be argued that this itself at the top of the list is the important thing to the writer. This is the kind of love that exists between friends and family. The Greek word is actually a Greek word that all of you know. It's just Philadelphia. It means brotherly love. Why is the city of Philadelphia called the city of brotherly love? Because it's literally what the word means in the Greek. Let brotherly love continue among each other. Guys, this is the kind of love that God intends to characterize His people. The way that we relate to each other, the way we deal with each other, the people we literally sit next to in church, our other brothers and sisters in Christ, that brotherly love actually controls our behavior with each other. We stand with each other as followers of Jesus. We contend with each other for the cause of the gospel and for each other's good. We aim at similar goals with each other so we walk through this life with Jesus Christ. Now this command, this thought, is actually quite common inside of the New Testament. You'll find this thought several places in lists like this in other letters. So the writer of Hebrews says, let brotherly love continue. Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 12, another incredible chapter about the way the life of the follower of Jesus Christ is lived. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, he says this, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Something that struck me as I was thinking through this topic of letting brotherly love continue and grow and, and control our relationships with each other, something that struck me is this. And the way the Apostle Paul puts it is good. Outdo one another in showing honor to each other. The kind of love that Christ works inside of our hearts, guys, is the opposite of the selfishness that tends to control the culture around us. The vices that tend to control our politics and our culture are things like envy and strife and selfishness. And into that, the Holy Spirit speaks to you and to me. Instead of all of that, here... What needs to be operating between us is actually love. What would it look like if every time we gather as the body of Christ, on Sunday morning, our small groups, our midweek groups, and every time we gathered, your perspective was, I'm here to outdo each other in honor. I'm here to view the other as more important than myself. You see, it militates against selfishness and self-centeredness and envy, and I look at others 
differently. Guys, the act of church and coming together to worship and what we do every time we get together, this is not a transactional institution. This is not the kind of place where we come and get what we want and every now and then give just a little bit. We walk out and we feel better. It's not like a grocery store where everything is free. We just walk in, take what we need, and walk out. The New Testament has never viewed the church that way. The New Testament always views the church as this mutuality of love and the power of the Holy Spirit. That when we gather together, this is what's at work. We're not just taking, 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 and walking away. We're actually invested in this. We're invested in each other. We pray for it. We act for it. We pour ourselves into the life and the health of the local church. So instead of that transactional view of church, the New Testament loves to call what we are a family. (laughs) The family of God. And every time I say that, I can hear some of you, because some of you have said this to me after service, I can hear you in the back of my head saying, but you don't know my family, right? Well, that's, that's too bad. <laughs> this is the family of God. What if this is the place where we receive the love of God and learn how to show the love of God to each other, and where we actually learn how to show it, learn how to pour ourselves into somebody else, or into something else? What if we were invested in the health, in the strength, in the grace of the local church? I believe deeply in the sanctifying power of a healthy local church. Not just the, the, the general idea of the church of Jesus Christ, which is a glorious thing, but the actual dirt under the fingernails life of the local church can be a significant thing in the place of a community. Guys, it is possible for church to just be a show, to be a platform where some people gain some relative notoriety or relative power, or it can be a place where this is just where the love of God reigns supreme, where He is always the most important thing inside of this building. Let brotherly love continue. And then he just moves on like that. Do not neglect to show hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, as I went through this passage, I learned something that I hadn't known before. This kind of jazzed me as I went through this passage of Scripture. The Greek word that is used for hospitality is the word philozania. And what that word literally means is love of the stranger. Now, you actually know how this word works, because philo, like in Philadelphia, this is a word for love. Xenia, xenia, is the word for stranger. Now, the reason you know that word is because we use that word constantly as a political insult today. Xenophobia is fear of the stranger or hatred of the stranger. And even though in our political discourse it's it's a really... It, it, it's a club that we use to beat each over the head with. Xenophobia is a real thing. Fear of or hatred of the stranger, someone who is different, or someone who speaks a different language, or looks differently than I do, or who lives a different lifestyle than I do. What Scripture says to you and me is that instead of the phobia of the stranger, what you and I are called to is actually love of the stranger. Now that's radical. That's hospitality. 
Now, stranger in this context doesn't have to just be someone who looks different than I do or speaks a different language than I do, but it clearly includes all of that. But what of anyone and everyone who is outside of the grace of Jesus Christ? What about our enemies? This is the kind of thing that this writer is calling us to do, to love those who live a strange life, so to speak, a different life, a life that might even be opposition to the church of Jesus Christ. Your call is not to hate them. The call that Christ places upon me is to learn how to love them. See, this context of love continues in this passage. So what of people who are outside the church, who don't exactly like the church? What if we learn how to show them hospitality? What is hospitality biblically? Here's what I think it is. Hospitality is a virtue that reaches out and pulls in. Instead of pressing away, instead of creating divisions, hospitality is the Christian virtue that reaches out and pulls in. You and I are tribal creatures. And we love to be really comfortable amongst the people who are like us, who like us, and whom we like. <laughs> we are tribal creatures, and we often define our tribe as we're not as dumb as those people are. We define ourselves in our group as not being like those people. We're these people. That's the kind of creatures that we are in our sin. And along comes this remnant ethic. Along comes the voice of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. He says, now I know that's natural to you, but there's something else that's possible. Instead of drawing those lines, we now reach out and we pull in. Okay? This is hospitality. The text says that by showing hospitality, some have entertained angels without even knowing it. The touchstone for this part of the verse comes from an Old Testament story in which Abraham actually entertains God and two of his messengers inside of his home as strangers and wanderers who have come in, and he feeds them inside of his house. And he actually begins to wrestle with God about Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and so forth. But, but this is the touchstone for that notion that, that God's messengers are amongst us. And so we show hospitality because there may be those events, as it was with Abraham, that we show hospitality to one of God's creatures as well. Right, so we show hospitality. Now, hospitality is an interesting thing. I want to talk about this for a couple minutes because it's a word that hits the Christian ear in a really interesting way. How many of you have ever taken a spiritual gifts test? Now, in those spiritual gifts tests, one of the, one of the things that's typically listed is hospitality. Now, hospitality is usually defined as something like this. Have people over to your house for dinner. Now, can hospitality include that? Well, of course it can. Does it mean being able to open your house to other people? Well, of course it does. But when Christians hear the word hospitality, we are immediately divided into two camps because one camp is like this. Oh, please come to my house for dinner. In fact, I'd like you to come tonight and bring all of your friends. I just want you inside of my house so that we can love on you. What's the other group of people? <laughs> please don't ever come over to my house I don't want you to have, I don't want to clean, things are, right? 
We split ourselves that way because we have narrowed hospitality that way. Of course it includes that sort of thing. But what if we thought about hospitality in terms of relational generosity? Relational generosity. What if you, as a person, can be opened up to someone who is different than you are? Someone who's outside of the church? Someone who's different than the culture around us but needs friends? What if you can actually be poured into the life of a stranger? And remember, it's a kind of love. Seeking after the good of another, stranger, maybe even an enemy, a willingness to put others first. And this is a powerful remnant activity because our culture continues to draw these really hard and fast lines between us and them. And man, if you are part of them, God help you, right? But instead of seeing strangers, God's remnant will see people who are made in the image of God and who need to know Jesus Christ. Don't neglect the love of strangers. And then the text says this, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Remember those who are in prison. This has actually been a character trait of the church for 2,000 years, that people who are part of the church of Jesus Christ have been in prison for being followers of Jesus Christ, and that the church has actually taken this seriously. And for almost 2,000 years, the church has done a really good job of reaching into prisons with the gospel of Jesus Christ and with encouragement and with help. This is one of these areas where the church has actually done a really good job in a lot of ways. So for centuries, the church has gone after those who are incarcerated, and they've gone after them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And keep this in mind as well with this passage of Scripture. How does that verse end? Because you are in the same body. The writer here is specifically thinking about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering in prison as persecution for their faith because they're followers of Jesus, because they stuck with the gospel of Jesus Christ, because they did not conform to the ways of this world, they have found themselves now in trouble. They found themselves now in legal trouble for being a follower of Jesus Christ. And the writer says, don't forget them. Keep in mind, friends, that there is this spiritual connection, this divine connection that exists between every child of God. Here's part of how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says this, If one member suffers, we all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so you and I are called to remember things like the persecuted church. We may not know individuals who are in prison because of their faith of Jesus Christ, but we are brothers and sisters with many who are. So we may not know their names, but guys, we need to remember them and to pray for them and to, when we can, work for them, to remember the persecuted church, to remember those who are in prison, especially those who are in prison for the cause of Jesus Christ. Before we move on, I want to make sure that we notice something about this passage of Scripture. Let brotherly love continue. Don't forget to love the stranger as well. 
Don't forget those who are in prison. We're looking at an upside-down kingdom. This is different than the world is. When we become followers of Jesus Christ, we now have a new kingdom to live in. And sometimes we call it just an upside-down kingdom because it says things that we don't normally expect. Here there is love instead of selfishness, hospitality instead of just a bunch of strangers, and we're supposed to remember those who are easily forgotten or easily marginalized. Now that kind of difference between what happens here amongst God's people and the rest of the world intensifies with the next thing inside of this list. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Marriage amongst the people of God. Let's at least remind ourselves of a few things this morning. Marriage is God's first institution. Long before there were other cultural institutions, long before there was a large culture, long before there was civilization, long before there were nations and politics, there was one thing, and it was marriage, and then it became family. This is God's central institution. It's the institution upon which everything else in culture is built. In fact, in many ways, God's design for marriage and family is the bedrock of a culture. It's the strength of a culture. So if you want to radically change culture, you can do so by trying to change the institution of marriage, right? Their world did not hold marriage as God intended it in high esteem. It just didn't. And so as these people are learning to follow Jesus Christ, this is, this is, in a sense, this is new information for them. This is a new way of doing things. This is a new way of handling your family. You weren't raised this way, is what's going on in the background here. But now we're learning something about what God has put together in marriage. In their world, guys, and I talk about their world, and we need to hear the echoes of our world as well, okay? So as a matter of culture for them, and in many ways, a matter of law in the Greco-Roman world, marriage was just a matter of giving birth to heirs. To make sure that we had someone to take on my role in the guild, to take on whatever land or property that I have. Okay, That's just a legal, contractual kind of outcome. Any sense of morality, any sense of actual connection to husband and wife and children is put into the world by the Christian church. It's not the world they were born into, but it's how they changed the world and the view of marriage. And so when Scripture speaks of God's design for marriage, we need to understand that as God designs it, it provides a safe and flourishing environment for men and for women and for children. And oftentimes when Scripture speaks of sexual immorality, it will speak of husband and wife and children because of how radically different things are or are supposed to be inside of their church. In their culture, the culture in which they were saved out of, guys, Women and children were basically at the whim of the men in their lives. They had very few legal and cultural protections, especially if the patriarch of the home had any kind of role in a guild or had property, that sort of thing. 
And so what happens with biblical marriage is that the definition of marriage as God puts it together puts boundaries around it and our behavior that makes Christians radically different from the culture around it. God's design and God's definition is straightforward, but it's radical inside of this world right now. Heterosexual, monogamous, and lifelong. This is God's intention for marriage. It's not just his design, it's not just his, excuse me, it's not just his command, it is actually his design for us as well. Something interesting happens when you go through the New Testament, you begin to catalog passages of Scripture about marriage and sexual immorality. They tip in the direction of speaking to men more often than to women. And the reason for that is, again, because of the culture that they lived in. Inside of a marriage, there were some really interesting expectations. Women were expected to be sexually loyal to their husbands. Okay? That's the Greco-Roman way. If you were married, you were expected to be loyal to your husband. The husband was expected to avoid adultery, and in order to avoid adultery, he was allowed to have, this is no joke, he was allowed to have sex with prostitutes, slaves, and little boys to avoid adultery. Now, what kind of sense does that make? Okay? Adultery meant having sex with another married woman. Now, you can have sex with anyone and anything else that you liked, but just not other married women. Is that a safe place for a wife? Is that a safe place for children being raised inside of that home? Of course it's not. So the New Testament comes along, and it keeps on saying stuff like, marriage needs to be held in honor by every single one of you. And the marriage bed itself, keep it undefiled from the way that you used to live. Now this is something that is precious and sacred to you. Don't bring anybody else into this, right? And it creates this safe and flourishing environment for everybody inside of this home. This is a moral advance. This is good for culture, what God is doing. So this biblical ethic is critical for a healthy marriage and for a healthy and safe family. So let's remind ourselves of two thoughts at this point. First of all, remember that the remnant will disagree with culture at critical points. So here we are. The remnant of Jesus Christ just will disagree with culture on this critical point. And we have to learn to expect disagreement, especially on the really big issues. Look at it like this. In their culture, they've got this Greco-Roman world that they're living in, and that world is messed up in a lot of ways. And they've been raised inside of that world. There are no second-generation Christians here in the book of Hebrews. They're all first-generation Christians, so they're being saved out of this world. And so this is the culture that they've lived in. And once they come to know Jesus Christ, they're now being asked to come out of that and live a different kind of life. So we get these lists. Now, now here is how you live. Now this is what you do. And this is now what marriage means to you. You come out and you're different. Things are a little bit different for you and for me. For a while now, we have lived in a culture that has largely been supportive of the Judeo-Christian lifestyle. So we've got this culture wherein the American church can live, or could for a long time, and by and large didn't disagree on a lot of the big issues. But what's happening? The culture's beginning to move away from that. And in many ways, is choosing the Roman way again. And now the church of Jesus Christ is being called to stay put. 
And I'll tell you what, guys, the tug to go with the world is strong. And people keep getting peeled off <laughs> one by one, denomination by denomination, and church by church because the pull is strong. Stay put. Remain faithful. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. So the remnant will disagree with culture, and that's okay. We just have to learn how to expect it. We have to learn how to deal with it and deal with it well. But then the remnant also has this preserving effect inside of the world. As the remnant is faithful to the things of Jesus Christ and lives faithfully to them, we preserve the institutions that God has given us. We preserve the kingdom of God inside of this world. We are, as Christ puts us, salt and light inside of this world. So the remnant has this preserving effect as it is faithful. Well, the list continues. In verse 8, it says this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Keep your life free from the love of money. The scripture doesn't say keep your life free from money but from the love of money. As with all of God's gifts, money can be used well or it can become our idol or it can become our taskmaster. And I'll tell you what, guys, you can be ruled by money if you have two cents to your name or two million dollars to your name. You can be ruled by that. And Scripture says keep away from the love of whatever it is you have or want money-wise. Now, we've all heard that verse of Scripture uh, quoted, the, now, money is the root of all evil, right? That's a misquotation of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Here's what uh, Paul says to Timothy. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. The phrase for love of money here means covetousness. And covetousness is the kind of greed that consumes our souls, right? So if we keep away from the love of money, one of the dynamics of love, the way love works inside of our lives, is that it attaches us to the object that is loved. And money can very quickly become our master, can very quickly become the thing in our lives that makes our decisions for us. It becomes an idol to us. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And the example that Jesus gives is that you cannot serve both God and money. They have two different goals. They have two different purposes inside of our lives. And so the remnant ethic, the ethic of the followers of Jesus Christ is very different. So guys, instead of loving money, we're intended to love God and use money. Okay? If we love money, we will use God. But we're being called to love God and then use whatever money or wealth God gives. Now, how can I learn whether or not money has become a master of my life? And I'm going to ask you a few questions. 
And again, keep in mind, when you graduate from seminary, you sign a letter that promises to make your congregation feel awkward every now and then. Okay, so I'm, I'm contractually bound to ask you questions that might lead to some weird conversations. How can you tell if money is your master? Do you obey God's command to tithe? Do you give money to missionaries when they need it? Do you give money to others who need it when they need it? <laughs> I hear the throats clearing. That's good. Some of your answer to those questions will tell you who's in charge. You can't serve two masters. I can remember some of the things that dad, I have actually remembered some of dad's sermons through the years. And one of the things that you used to say is, is this, the antidote to greed is generosity. It's giving. Whatever it is, God has given you. And God has given some people the ability to make money. That's a God-given gift. But can we hold whatever God has given us with an open hand? Can we as followers of Jesus Christ learn to use the financial gifts that God has given us to take care of the other gifts that he's given us and to further the kingdom of God? And if so, then it's probably not my master. I can actually hold it with an open hand. And the writer of Hebrews leads us to an interesting theological thought here. It's not just be free from the love of money. Instead of that, you need to recognize this. He says, God is your provider. God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. I don't care how frightened you get in life. And oftentimes our fear and fright and anxiety is the result of what kind of trouble? Financial trouble. Scripture says God is the one who takes care of this. The Lord is my helper. He will never leave me. God's influence and power in my life will not diminish in an economic downturn. It just won't. The Old Testament quotation here comes from two passages in Psalms. One of them is Psalm 56, and here's a couple of those verses. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? We learn this really interesting lesson in Hebrews chapter 11 about faith. And one of those lessons was this. Sometimes God limits our resources so that we can revel in the abundance of his resources. We just can't do it or accomplish it. And sometimes God puts us in exactly that position so we learn the lesson that God is my helper. I will not be afraid. When I'm afraid, I'm going to trust in him. That's where I'm going to put my trust. So the remnant begins to see wealth as a way to take care of the gifts that God has given us and as a way of furthering the kingdom of God. And in verse 7, the writer mentions our spiritual leaders. Now, the writer is going to come back to this thought later on, so we'll dig into it in greater detail then, but I want to read verse 7 real quick. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Hebrews reminds us to keep in mind the spiritual leadership and the influence of our spiritual leaders. Those who came to this particular church, 
They're the ones who spoke the gospel to you. They're the ones who trained the elders. They're the ones whose lives you learned Jesus Christ from. You watched them live and now imitate their lives. Now, this is important because what becomes the most influential set of people inside of the American church? That's an important question because we live in a Christian celebrity culture. And most of us are, you know, we know more of the Christian celebrity instead of the spiritual mothers and fathers who are physically inside of our local congregation. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us, there are powerful spiritual leaders inside of your local church. Let them be the influence that leads and guides your life. These are the ones we're supposed to imitate and remember. Paul even tells the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. As I follow Christ. And then verse 8, the last verse in the section that we're going to deal with this morning. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's a curious verse to stick in a list of honeydews. <laughs> in this long to-do list, we get right in the middle of it this profound, transcendent truth about Jesus. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Guys, this is encouragement to faith in this book. See, God's people are being asked to behave in ways that align us with the will and the purpose of God, to live in ways that reflect the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of this world. And everyone who reads this book, regardless of culture, is being asked to do the same. Because in every culture, every culture will pull the Christian away from the will and the purposes of God. And sometimes that pull is subtle, sometimes it's quiet, sometimes it's violent. But everyone who reads this is being asked to stick. Jesus doesn't change, so don't you change. The message that you were saved with is still the truth that you live by and that this world desperately needs. He doesn't change. So we are going to be as faithful and as courageous and as enduring as we know how to be. The faithful remnant will contend for the good news of Jesus Christ in every way they can, in every context they can. A pastor who writes well on issues like this, Mark Sayers, he says this, The remnant becomes a living and breathing alternative vision, showcasing the spiritual health and the vitality that comes when we contend and cry out for God to move. A living and breathing alternative vision to the world around us. Guys, the church of Jesus Christ does not find influence and it doesn't find renewal or revival when it becomes more like the culture. Chances are better for both the church and the culture to experience the renewal that comes with the power of God when the church remains faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let brotherly love continue because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray.